Good morning, everyone. It's really good to have the uh, Lewises with us, so thank you for that greeting. And if you don't know the Lewises, if you haven't met them yet, I'd encourage you to grab them afterwards and, and say hello. So we, <clears throat> as has already been mentioned, we're walking through the book of Proverbs, and um, a lot of ink is spilled in chapters 5 through 7, dealing with issues of sexuality. And the fact that there's that much ink spilled on this subject is instructive in and of itself. Um, God cares about um, these issues, and um, he has designed us. He knows what's best for us, and he wants us to trust him. Um, so last week we looked at chapter 5, and this morning we're going to look at chapter 620 to the end of chapter 7. Why are we skipping 6, 1 to 19? Well, because um, we are not going to go through every single verse in the book of Proverbs. Okay, The way that Proverbs is structured, um, that would be really difficult. So we're slowing down a little bit in the first nine chapters, which are you know, more... Um, kind of normal, you know, section by section and theme by theme. But then after that, from 10 to 31, chapters 10 to 31, there's lots of these just individual sayings. And so we're going to cover that ground by hitting themes, okay? Like friendship. What does the book of Proverbs have to say on friendship or work? So, for instance, chapter 6, 1 and 19 hits on three different themes. Um, money, work, and words. And we're actually going to have themes, like one week given to money, one week given to work, one week given to our speech. And so we're going to just leave that section, you know, for those respective weeks. And that's why we're hitting six and seven the way that we are this morning. All right? So that's a little bit of review, a little bit of explanation for why we're jumping in here at 620. Um, but I want you to think with me here. Um, so I don't know how many... Greek mythology people there are out there. Um, my kids know Greek mythology better than I do. But anyway, how many of you have heard of the sirens in Greek mythology? S-I-R-E-N-S. Okay, so depending on which story you read, they were either part woman, part bird, or part, like, they, they appeared as these beautiful women, but really they were these, like, demonic monsters um, that would eat you alive. All right, so either way, they beckoned to sailors that passed by. They were on the edge of this island, and they would beckon to sailors by their beautiful songs, which were, like, irresistible. So once sailors were lured in by those songs, their boats were actually dashed on the rocks, and they died <clears throat> and were consumed by these grotesque cannibals. So many a sailor met their end there, lured to their death by the deceitful song of the sirens, okay? So there are two primary stories in Greek mythology where the sirens show up. The first is Odysseus, a.k.a. Ulysses, okay, in the Odyssey by Homer. So Odysseus was a devoted husband and father, but the king's wife, Helen, the face that launched a thousand ships, right? had been kidnapped by the prince of Troy and duty called. So he left to rescue her and he crossed the sea to do so. I mean, that's the whole Trojan horse episode, okay? If you know anything about that. So to rescue Helen from Troy. 
On the way back, don't worry, this has got everything to do with Proverbs 6 and 7, so hang with me here. So on the way back, Odysseus met many challenges and setbacks. It took him 10 years to get home. One of the challenges was that he had to sail by the, iron, the, the, <laughs> the island of the Sirens. And as we know, as Odysseus was warned, the song of the Sirens was irresistible. So what's he going to do? It's like the sweetest song you've ever heard. So how are you going to pass safely by that alluring malevolence? Ulysses was warned of the sirens by somebody named, I don't know how to pronounce this, Cirque, Kirk, something. Somebody just said it. Circe, thank you. Okay. Any other pronunciation questions go to whoever that was that just spoke. Is it you, Tracy? Okay, thanks. Circe, I knew that. Just checking to make sure Tracy did. Um, so Ulysses listened, and um, basically what she gave him and told him was, I'm going to give you this beeswax, and you, you know, stick it in your sailor's ears, and when you go by, you won't hear the song, and you can make it safely past. So he did just that, at least for his sailors. For himself, he wanted to hear the siren song and live to tell the tale. So he had the sailors tie him to the mast of the ship. And he told them ahead of time, no matter what I say, no matter what I do, no matter how much I beg and plead, do not untie me. And as they pass by the island and the sirens sang their song, Ulysses hears the siren song and he became frantic with desire to go to the islands. He strained so hard at the ropes that they cut through his flesh but his sailors refused to untie him, and they all made it safely past. So he resisted, but not because of internal desire. It was only the shackles of the ropes that held him back from pursuing his heart's desire. And that is probably how many Christians deal with temptation a lot of the time. We actually want what the world offers, what our sinful desires want, but we keep it in check because we don't want to look bad. Or we keep it hidden so that we don't look bad. We can easily bind ourselves to the mast of religiosity with the ropes of fear and shame and pride. But here's the problem. Like, if you don't want fidelity to Jesus, if you don't want purity of heart, you can find a way around the external guardrails, right? As good as they may be. So, George Herbert, um, all these old illustrations, um, not as old as Greek mythology, but lived in the early 1600s. He wrote a poem called Sin the First, and here's what he writes. Lord, with what care, and pardon the old language here, but you'll get the point and see why this is worth reading. Lord, with what care hast thou begirt, okay, have you encompassed us round? Parents first season us, then schoolmasters deliver us to laws, then send us bound to rules of reason, holy messengers, pulpits and Sundays, sorrow-dogging sin, like so the sorrow and regret that follows hard on sin's heels, in a sense, is something that keeps us from further sin. 
right? <clears throat> Afflictions sorted, anguish of all sizes, fine nets and stratagems to catch us in. Bibles laid open, millions of surprises, blessings beforehand, ties of greatness, gratefulness, which would follow after. The sound of glory ringing in our ears without our shame, within our consciences. All these things keep us, right, from sin. Angels and grace, eternal hopes and fears, yet all these fences and their whole array, one cunning bosom sin blows quite away. Isn't that true? You can have all kinds of external protections, gracious protections, but man, the right, well-timed temptation aimed at our desires and all the fences just obliterated and we go get what we want. And then sometimes we just end up kind of limping along, trying to have our cake and eat it too. We keep up appearances and, you know, stay faithful externally. But our hearts are really hungry for, and maybe they are feeding on forbidden fruit. Maybe we feel guilty and, you know, bursts and cycles, but we keep things together, keep up the religious facade. You know, even maybe we should give a little bit more time or money here and there, and then that'll help us feel better about, feel better about ourselves, you know, for a time. But we're not free. We're enslaved to our lusts and shackled by religious expectations and externals. So that can certainly happen in the church. That can happen in the lives of any of us. Like, what, what to do? I mean, is that what this Christian life is supposed to be? What is at the heart of, like, Christian sexual fidelity? Well, that's what our passage is going to help us see, the heart of sexual fidelity. So, first point, wed to the word of the wise, okay? What we're going to see here is the first four verses of chapter, well, not the first four verses, because we're not looking at one to four. Um, 620 to 24, and seven, one to five are in parallel, okay? So look with me here at 620. My son, keep your father's commandment and forsake not your mother's teaching. Bind them on your heart always. Tie them around your neck. When, when you walk, they will lead you. When you lie down, they will watch over you. When you awake, they will talk with you. Does that sound familiar? Deuteronomy 6, that Karen read. For the commandment is a lamp, and the teaching a light, and the reproofs of dis di discipline are the way of life to preserve you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. And I've said this before, I'll say it again. Um, my son, this began as a book written from a father to his son, but later on, like for instance in Hebrews chapter um, 12, a section from uh, Proverbs 3, my son, is quoted there and applied to all believers. So this isn't just limited to young males in its application. So imagine God as our Heavenly Father speaking this to each of us. So my son, my daughter, this is how you keep your heart from sexual temptation. But 
I guess we should ask the question, is, is all of this equivalent to being lashed to the mast? Like, hey, keep the rules, bind them on your heart always, tie them around your neck. You know, it sounds like ropes and more ropes. I mean, are these just external prods and prohibitions? If you've struggled repeatedly with sexual sin and temptation, are any of you tempted to say like, oh, yeah, well, I know all that. Are you going to say like, read your Bible more? I know all the verses. I know all the Bible passages. I've memorized all the verses. Like, I still struggle. I still give in to sexual temptation. I've tried. didn't work. Okay, so knowing Bible verses doesn't somehow magically inoculate you against all temptation and sin, but beware the impulse to downplay, to minimize the vital importance of God's word and its power in this battle. Like, we are talking about the sword of the Spirit of God here. It is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. This is serious power that is available to us. So you and I, we desperately need God's word, his grace, his wisdom, not in a superficial or merely intellectual way. We need to wed ourselves to the word by the power of the Holy Spirit, like weaving it into our hearts. We need to work the wisdom of the word down deep into our inner being so that it changes us from the inside out, becomes a part of who we are. Like, this is part and parcel with conversion, right? Like the way that the Old Testament prophets speak of the new covenant is taking out a heart of stone that's cold and dead toward God and replacing with a heart of flesh, a soft heart that has like new desires. Doesn't mean you're gonna be perfect, but you want to love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. You want to love your neighbor as yourself and not use or abuse or objectify anyone else. And this is exactly what 6, 20 to 24 and 7, 1 to 5 are exhorting us to do. It's not just external stuff. It's working the word down to the core of who we are so that it changes us from the inside out. My son, keep your father's commandment. Forsake not your mother's teaching. Bind them on your heart. Always. Like so rehearse them that they sink down to the core of who you are. Tie them around your neck. Like don't leave that Deuteronomy 6 heritage behind because when you internalize this truth, when you walk, it's going to lead you. Just like the Lord is my shepherd. It's the same word, actually. He leads me in paths of righteousness. So the word will lead you like a shepherd, like actively. When you lie down, they will watch over you. If you keep, protect, internalize Torah, the teaching, it will actually protect you. When you awake, they will talk with you. God's wisdom, his words will counsel you because they're so much a part of you. 
And then look, the commandment is a lamp and the teaching a light. So yeah, we're going to go through plenty of dark places and valleys and temptation, but when the word resides within, it will shine in the darkness and show us the way forward and the way of escape when we're under temptation. The reproofs of discipline are the way of life to preserve you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. So this is internal light shining, not just external inhibitors. And it will help us find our way out of darkness and temptation into the light of freedom. Look at chapter 7, verse, verses 1 to 5, which is in parallel with 6, 20 to 24. My son, keep, don't just know my words, but keep my words and treasure up my commandments with you. Keep my commandments and live. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye, like, which is an expression for how precious it is. Your corneas, your pupils, like you've got to really protect those. You don't want, um, like Ben one time on family vacation, he was two years old, picked up a loaded airsoft gun and went like this shot himself right in the eye when we went to the ophthalmologist and they showed the, they put the dye on and showed that it literally was like the circle from the BB was right on the center of his cornea. And it was kind of touch and go. Like, I think, you know, Ben hasn't shot himself in the eye since then, you know? That's good. He learned a lesson. This is a precious thing. Like, we know a few ophthalmologists their knowledge of the eye and the cornea and, and the fragility of it all doesn't lead them to be less careless with their own eyes and with the eyes of their kids, but more so. Like, that's the way we ought to treat the teaching. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Again, echoing Deuteronomy 6. Say to wisdom, you my sister. Like, treat wisdom like a beloved family member, companion. Actually, sister can sometimes refer to your wife, so it's possible that it even is referring to, like, again, wedding yourself to wisdom. Call insight your intimate friend. Befriend wisdom. Intimately acquainted with insight. Make her your best friend. Like, we do everything together. I mean, that's kind of a silly way to say it, but it gets the point across. You should do everything together with the wisdom of God because it will keep you from temptation, male or female, right? So wed yourself to the word of the wise. Guard and keep the word, and it will keep you from sexual sin and devastation. Like Psalm 119.9 says, how can a young man or a young woman or older man or older woman, for that matter, keep his way pure by guarding it according to your word? So if, if we're going to resist sexual temptation... We need to wed ourselves to the word of the wise. We need to lash ourselves to the mast of the word in a good way. Doesn't mean like Odysseus did because the difference is, you all know, if, how many of you have been to Israel? Okay, been to the Wailing Wall or maybe you've seen an Orthodox Jew that looked like this. Hope you want to put that picture up. So you see that thing on his forehead? See the straps on his arm? And do you remember what Karen read? You know, have it on your forehead and on your hands. Is this what Moses was talking about? Literally, that you should have the words here and here? 
no. It means don't ever lose sight of it. These words that I command you today should be on your heart. And so talk about them all the time, like connect all of life, all the dots. So the whole point is not, you can skip that, you can move on from that picture. So the whole point is it should be bound up at the core of who we are, okay? Not, again, just an external thing. Like, you could obviously have the whole Bible sticking on your head. You could have it tattooed over your whole body, but still have a heart that says, you know, forget you to Jesus, I'm going to do my own thing. Right? We need different desires at the core. So, the metaphor is there to help us pursue the reality of God's word at the core of who we are. So, 7, 1 to 4 is in like, in a sense, like a song that should fill our ears and our heart to displace the false promises of sin. So listen to that language there in 7, 1 to 4 again. Keep my commandments and live. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet. Say to wisdom, you're my sister. So listen, listen. Like stay close. Be counseled by. So what do we hear when we stay close to God's wisdom? We hear things like Isaiah 55. Come, everyone who thirsts. Everybody's going to get hungry. Everybody's going to thirst. And obviously sexual thirst and hunger would be one category where we can wander away from God and go our own way, take matters in our own hands, be wise in our own eyes, reject his wisdom and goodness. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good. I want to satisfy your soul. So when we actually listen and attend to and guard and lash the word of God around our hearts, what do we hear? God saying, I want to satisfy your soul. Listen diligently to me and eat what is good. You're going to be thirsty. You're going to be hungry. But the only way you'll be satisfied is if you come to me. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make an everlasting covenant like a marriage covenant. My sure, my steadfast, sure love for David. And this comes to us through the greater David the Lord Jesus, his son. So, come everyone who thirsts. If you are trying to satisfy your sexual thirst at the bottom of a broken cistern, it's not going to satisfy you. You're just going to keep needing more and more novel and different and whatever. But Jesus, God's incarnate wisdom, says, get out of the cistern and come and drink at the fountain. Put down that you know, three-day-old McDonald's hamburger and come eat the filet mignon of the grace of God in Christ. Jesus said to them, John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. It's actually stronger than that in Greek. It shall never, ever hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never, ever thirst. So the word of God, the gospel of Jesus, the promises of God that are ours in him are the superior song that we need to 
listen to, if we neglect that sweeter song, we're going to be susceptible to the sirens. Right? And it's going to cost us dearly. So point number two, consider the cost. And again, in parallel, you have this cost in chapter 6 and in chapter 7. Look first at 625. Do not desire her beauty in your heart. Remember back to when Eugene was preaching on chapter 4. Guard your heart. Do not desire her beauty in your heart. Do not let her capture you with her eyelashes. Um, My girls think that's funny. I won't go down that rabbit trail. Um, So it just means her glances, right, that communicate interest and openness. Don't let her capture you that way. For the price of a prostitute is only a loaf of bread, but a married woman hunts down a precious life. What's going on here? A prostitute may be affordable, cheap, but only a foolish cost-benefit analysis is blind to the real cost. And as for adultery, a married woman, she might be free. You don't have to pay like you do the prostitute, but that scenario will cost you everything, ruin your life. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Of course not. Can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? It is dangerous to play with fire. You will get burned. And that burn could be like immediate and torturous, but it can also be the slow, deadening, cauterizing effect where you just are hardened by the deceitfulness of sin and you don't even feel the conviction of the Spirit anymore. That is a scary place to be. So we need to heed this warning. Verse 29, so is he who goes in to his neighbor's wife. Or again, we could flip it, go the other direction. So is she who goes in to her neighbor's husband. None who touches her will go unpunished. And then he says this, people do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy his appetite when he's hungry, but if he's caught, he'll pay sevenfold. In other words, he'll still pay. Even though, eh, it's understandable, he was hungry. So if, if a thief who's hungry still pays for it, how much more someone who satisfies this appetite So no matter what, you will pay for sexual sin. It will cost you more than you bargained for. Verse 32, he who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. So we dare not destroy ourselves. Are you destroying yourself? Like, do you need the neon lights? Like, no, don't go any further. He will get wounds and dishonor. His disgrace will not be wiped away. For jealousy makes a man furious, and he will not spare when he takes revenge. He will accept no compensation. He will refuse, though you multiply gifts. So adultery, the the message is clear. It's costly. You won't go unpunished. You'll destroy yourself. You'll get wounds, dishonor, disgrace, and you could even get hunted down by a jealous husband. And Jesus would add that it could cost you your soul. Matthew 5. Or elsewhere in the New Testament, the warnings against sexual sin are regularly tied to eternal judgment and wrath of God. Like, this is serious stuff. I wish I had time. Um, there are some excellent letters. You can just Google letter, letters to a would-be adulterer and then maybe desiring God. 
Brady Wharton actually pointed this out to me this past week, and I read several of them. So it's just different husbands and wives, um, spiritual leaders that wrote these letters to a would-be adulterer, and they are wise and helpful and sobering. So maybe check that out later. But the bottom line is it's not worth it. The cost is too high. So point number three, take back your imagination. What does that mean? Well, look at chapter 7, verse 6. So this wise father is going to tease out a scenario, something that he's seen when he looked out his window. And, you know, perhaps you've heard it said that the brain is the most potent sexual organ. And sadly, our brains are probably much more often used for sinful fantasy than in the service of faith, hope, and love. Just to make this very concrete um, and clear, C.S. Lewis wrote about this um, very candidly. He wrote to a a guy named Keith Mason in 1953. I'm going to quote this um, letter here, all right? So it's on the subject of masturbation. This is real stuff. So here's what he writes. For me, the real evil of masturbation would be that it takes an appetite which in lawful use, leads the individual out of himself to complete and correct his own personality in that of another. And finally, in children and even grandchildren. Don't, doesn't marriage and children and grandchildren have an effect of like burning the selfishness out of us, exposing it first, like showing us how selfish we are and everybody with me? So, the real evil of it is that it takes this appetite and, and turns it back, sends the man back into the prison of himself, there to keep a harem of imaginary brides. And this harem, once admitted, works against his ever getting out and really uniting with a real woman. For the harem is always accessible, always subservient calls for no sacrifices or adjustments, and can be endowed with erotic and psychological attractions which no real woman can rival. Among those shadowy brides, he is always adored, always the perfect lover. No demand is made on his unselfishness, no mortification ever imposed on his vanity. In the end, they become merely the medium through which he increasingly adores himself. And it is not only the faculty of love which is thus sterilized, forced back on itself, but also the faculty of imagination. The true exercise of imagination, in my view, is first to help us to understand other people. And then second, to respond to, and some of us to produce, art. So love and producing art. But it also has a bad use to provide for us in shadowy form a substitute for virtues, successes, distinctions, etc., which ought to be sought outside in the real world. For instance, picturing all I'd do if I were rich instead of earning and saving. Do you see that? Like, I can create this imaginary world. So masturbation involves this abuse of imagination in erotic matters. One of the main works of life is to come out of ourselves, out of the little dark prison we are all born in. Masturbation is to be avoided as all things are to be avoided which retard this process. The danger is that of coming to love 
the prison. So we know the ill uses to which we can put our imaginations. But God gave us an imagination for good, for his glory, for our good, for the good of others. And he wants us to employ our imagination in the service of sexual fidelity. So look at verse 6. For at the window of my house, I have looked out through my lattice, and I've seen among the simple. Here's what he's saying to his son. Can you picture it? I want you to picture this. Picture this scenario. Use your imagination. I've perceived among the youths a young man lacking sense, literally lacking heart, like he's got no direction. He's aimless. He's just kind of wandering through life, which makes him susceptible. Passing along the street near her corner. Uh Uh-oh, wrong place. Taking the road to her house. Remember last week? Gravitational pull sphere of influence. He's getting closer to the vortex. Taking the road to her house, when? In the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night and darkness. Uh Uh-oh. Wrong time. Wrong place. Wrong time. He's playing with fire. He's going to get burned. The timing is obviously highlighted, right? Repeated three times. So to broaden this a little bit, to modernize it, it's like going on the internet without a purpose when you're tired and stressed or lonely and self-pitying. And maybe if you're married, your wife or husband is already in bed. So we've got to be careful not to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. This passing along the street near her corner It's foolish curiosity. Like, are you aware of how we can kind of hoodwink ourselves when we want something that we shouldn't want? Have you ever realized this dynamic? Like the heart, the flesh wants what it wants, and it commandeers our minds to justify and rationalize. It's art. I'm just curious. I'm just going to check the scores. I'm really hoping that, you know, there's a few entries from the swimsuit edition down at the bottom. We need to be wed to the word of the wise so that, back in chapter 6, verse 22, when you walk, they will lead you. When you lie down, they will watch over you. When you awake, they will talk with you. For the commandment is a lamp and the teaching a light to dispel the darkness. So verses 6 to 9 in Chapter 7, help us picture the foolish decisions that we can make to lead ourselves down the wrong road. Wrong place, wrong time. Now, verses 10 to 21 are going to picture some of the strategies of the world, the flesh, and the devil in our temptations. Like, we should not be unaware of the kind of schemes and temptations that we're going to face. So look at chapter, or look, look at chapter 7, verse 10. And behold, the woman meets him, Here's the approach. Dressed as a prostitute. She's dressed to kill. Wily of heart. She's loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home. Now in the street, now in the marketplace. At every corner she lies in wait. She seizes him and kisses him. Here's the shock factor to get his attention. Like, oh, how many online gateway images are just like this. This is what clickbait is. It's like nothing new under the sun. 
freebies to suck you in and entice you. It's flattering. It appeals to the ego. It seems like you're wanted and desired. And then verses 14 to 20 go on to set up a scenario, we won't go through it in detail, where this guy thinks he's hit the jackpot. Like, whoa, it's my lucky day. Everything is just perfect. And no risk, you know? Hubby is far from home. No fear of being found out. No one will know. It's safe. So verse 21, with much seductive speech, she persuades him with her smooth talk. Remember that in chapter 5? We looked at that last week. Last week, she compels him, and now the pacing slows, and the ominous music starts to play all at once. All of a sudden, he follows her. Like, those are words that should make us just shiver. Imagine asking those who've committed adultery and blown up their marriages and their families and lives what they would do if they could go back just before that moment. As an ox goes to the slaughter or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver, as a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. We've got to be wise to the ways of the world, the flesh, and the devil. We dare not be unaware and foolish and too open and susceptible to the deceitfulness of sin and the schemes of the devil. So we should use our imagination for the, sense, for the sake of our own protection. Like watch and learn from this cautionary tale. We can allow our imagination to be hijacked by our lusts, and we need to commandeer our imagination, take it back in the service of love of God and others. So the sage calls on us to picture this, to protect us from sexual folly. C.S. Lewis did the same thing when he wrote the screw tape letters. He was helping us, using his imagination, to help us not be unaware of the schemes of the devil. I recently read a book by Ray Ortland called The Death of Porn. Men of Integrity, Building a World of Nobility. And I love how he begins the first half of the book under the heading, Reintroducing the Characters. And the first three chapters are, you are royalty, he's writing to men, because you're made in the image of God, and if you're a Christian, you are a son of the king. She is royalty, every woman is made in the image of God. You dare not objectify her, treat her like a, something to be consumed, and then the third chapter is he is royalty. King Jesus is king of kings and lord of lords, and he's the one that's in charge of our sexuality. And then the latter half of the book is under the heading reimagining the future. We can do this. We can change. We can work together. You need brothers, if you're a woman, you need sisters to help, and then we can make a world of difference. So actually thinking of starting a book study on this book or another one, I need to finish reading the other one before we do, but uh, there'll be more details on that. But here's the thing, we, we can have this like idolatrous cinematic misuse of our imagination, or we can actually use our imagination for protective, productive purposes. Like imagine yourself in that role and shudder, like waking from a nightmare. Have, the, have you ever had this happen where you're like, <gasps> oh, I'm so glad it's not real. Like all of the sudden, if you really picture this, you follow the sage, when you read all of a sudden, you'd be like, okay, don't ever want to go there. 
So the point is not merely putting more information in your head, but to capture your moral imagination so that visceral fear and revulsion, fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, result. So we can actually take back our imaginations and employ them, not for fantasizing and idolatry, but for fidelity. It's part of how we guard our hearts so we can faithfully go the distance. Finally, fourth point, the sweeter song. What do I mean by that? The heart of sexual integrity is not found in merely avoiding the pitfalls, not just the no's of God's word and wisdom. Not just the ropes that keep us from jumping in the water. There's actually another character in Greek mythology who encountered the sirens. Ever heard of Jason and the Argonauts? So he's the guy that went after the golden fleece. So he also knew of the danger of the sirens, and he was aware of their alluring power and deadly intent. But rather than using beeswax and ropes, he hired Orpheus to travel with him and his men on the ship. Orpheus was a legendary musician and renowned poet. As they passed the island of the sirens, the alluring songs of the sirens rang out, but Jason had ordered Orpheus to play his most beautiful songs. And Orpheus' songs were more beautiful than any in the land, more beautiful than those of the sirens. The siren's song held no power over him and his men. They were spellbound by the more beautiful, superior song. No beeswax, no ropes needed. So both Odysseus and Jason and their men made it past the island, but in very different ways, for very different reasons. When it comes to sexual temptation, the world is full of siren songs. Like, how are we going to make it safely through? How are we going to navigate? Do you see how the main thing is to aim at heart change? We need to be captured by a more beautiful song. Never forget one of the opening lines of the book Future Grace by John Piper. Sin is what you do when your heart is not satisfied in God. We've got to aim at satisfaction in God. Like, we've got to tune our ears to the more beautiful song of the covenantal love of God in Christ and all of his very great and precious promises that are ours to satisfy our souls. Whoever believes in me, whoever comes to me will never ever hunger. Whoever believes in me will never ever thirst. So how about we just take a listen, like one closing thing here, the the witness of the woman at the well. And this is for all of us, whether married or single. Like if we try to make another person or sexual fulfillment into an ultimate thing, we'll never be satisfied. Jesus offered her living water. Oh, yeah, I'll take that. That'd be great. Okay, go bring your husband. Why did he ask her that? because she'd been looking for love in all the wrong places all of her life. And it wasn't going to satisfy her. But Jesus could satisfy her, whether you're married, whether you're single. So we need to tune our ears to the sweet song of the gospel. If you are in Christ, you are going to live happily ever after. You realize that? Like Jesus has already laid down his life for you. 
Martin Luther said, faith unites the soul to Christ as a bride is united with her bridegroom. From such a marriage, as St. Paul says, it follows that Christ and the soul hold all things in common, whether for better or worse. This means that what Christ possesses belongs to the believing soul. What the soul possesses belongs to Christ. Thus, Christ possesses all good things in holiness. These now belong to us. The soul possesses lots of vices and sins. These now belong to Christ. Now, is this not a happy business? Christ, the rich, noble, and holy bridegroom, takes in marriage this poor, contemptible, and sinful little prostitute, that's us, takes away all her evil and bestows all his goodness upon her. It's no longer possible for sin to overwhelm her, for she is now found in Christ. We can be fully cleansed and forgiven and reconciled to God, and we're going to live happily ever after with him no matter what. Jesus already made his vows. I, Jesus, take you, sinner, to be my lawfully wedded wife to have and to hold from this day forward for better for worse for richer for poorer in sickness and in health to love and to cherish from this day forward and because I died for you not even death can separate you from my love we will live happily ever after like if we tune our ears to the sweeter song of our life and joy and peace and satisfaction in Christ whether we're single whether we're married The siren songs of the world can't hold a candle to that. Covenant love, promises of Jesus are what we need to be empowered to keep our covenant with Jesus and with our spouse if we're married. And in a sense, this table is a kind of covenant renewal. So we get to rehearse this grace even now as we come to the table. So the men who are going to be serving, if you can come forward now. Jesus has given himself to us, and if you have received him, knowing that you are sinful, you've been unfaithful, you've taken his gifts and, you know, used them for your own pleasure, if you recognize your sin and you recognize Jesus came to seek and save the lost, you are so glad that he comes to cleanse us, to heal us, to forgive us. If you've turned from your sin and are trusting in Jesus, then we eat his, we remember his body and blood and we feed on him because whoever comes to him will never ever hunger. Whoever believes in him will never ever thirst. We need to be satisfied in Christ. So let's feed on Christ so that we're satisfied in Christ so that we can stiff arm all the temptations, right? And then if any of you are here who are not yet trusting in Jesus as Savior, we're so glad that you're here. Just let the elements pass when they come past you. But please don't let this moment pass. Consider, you, you do live before a holy God. And what are you going to do with your sin? If, if, if you have to stand before God on your own merits, you're in trouble. I would be in trouble. All of us would be in trouble. The only way we can stand before God is washed by the blood of Jesus and in his 
righteousness. So consider that. And if you have questions and want to know what it means to be a Christian and how to become a Christian, I'd be happy to talk to you afterwards. So let's pray briefly and then we'll receive. Let just everyone be served before we participate together in the Lord's table. Oh God, we thank you for your great, great love in that while we were still unfaithful, prostitute-like sinners, you sent Jesus to die for us and to rescue us from ourselves and to cleanse us and make us yours. And we thank you and praise you. Lord, give us ears to hear the beauty, the glory, the wonder, the sweetness of that song and make it put us out of taste for the tempter's hooks that he puts all manner of bait on to deceive us. In Jesus' name.